And, oops, sorry, can you guys hear me still? Hello? Hi, Rosalea. I think you uh, you went in and out for a minute. Okay, sorry, can, are, can you guys hear me? Uh, we can now. Yeah, I can hear okay. you now. Guess we're just experiencing right. some technical difficulties. Yes, we are. Well, um, the show must go on, as they say. Um, but, yeah, uh, so, yeah, we're going to continue our conversation um, just bringing millennial voices to the table. We've already done our introductions last week. Um, again, I'm Latoya Fernandez. I work in education. I'm also an activist um, and a nonprofit founder. Um, and we have two of our other hosts that are here from last week as well. And today we're actually going to get started. We're talking about something that's pretty recent in the news. Are you guys still there? Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Okay, awesome. Awesome. Um, so we're going to be actually be talking about tariffs today and uh, the G7, and so I'm just going to kind of give a little bit of information, and then we're going to have Sam take over the conversation, and um, and, and we're just going to we're going to see what people think and and open up the platform for dialogue. So. Um, President Donald Trump's closest Republican allies on Capitol Hill are criticizing his plan to impose tariffs on steel and aluminum imports to protect national security. Meanwhile, Democrats are applauding. Now, the positive, uh, the upside-down reaction comes a day after Trump irked Republicans and pleased many Democrats by backing stricter gun control measures and suggesting the government could take guns initially without due process from some citizens viewed as dangerous. The House Speaker Paul Ryan's office said that Trump should reconsider his plan for a 25% tariff on imported steel and 10% on aluminum, announced at the White House on Thursday. So I just wanted to uh, open up with um, with that information. And then, Sam, I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to you to get the conversation started. Yeah, no, that's awesome uh, news, Latoya. So just like a warning, right? So I'm a recent graduate from college, and my, grad, my uh, degree is in economics, which is supposed to mean that it means something, uh, that I know what I'm talking about. But honestly, uh, my degree, although it gave me a lot of info, a lot of what I've learned has just been through uh, reading different articles, especially on this whole Trump and tariff thing. So my general view, and so I want to kind of test the waters and see what you guys think is as well, is that I think they're positive, right? And so in my view, I do think that specifically countries like China, uh, countries like Mexico, and countries like even, say, the EU have taken advantage of the United States on trade. I mean, and so I think, and I don't blame uh, the past administration for that necessarily, so that's not something that I believe you can point at Obama and say, look at what you've done. You've made America weaker in trade. I think that's been a a trend since uh, you could go back as far as maybe Carter or even Ronald Reagan. But really what I think it was a product of was kind of the international system that we set up, right? So post-World War II, we were the economic powerhouse. I think we were like 30% of global GDP. And so at the time, we just used our economic clout Uh, to get what we wanted as far as any other foreign policy structure goes. So we have this elaborate order, but things have changed, right, since then. I mean, so the WTO, which has rounds every so few years, has been on what's called the Doha round since like 2006, right? And they just have to pass like continuing resolutions because no one agrees on anything as far as trade goes, right? And that's because I think we've seen – powerhouses like China come online and start to take advantage of the system. I mean, so where I see tariffs coming in use because is, is this, and also I'll give you an example, and then I'll love to hear what you guys think, is one thing okay. China will do is China essentially just state sponsors all their biggest corporations, or even small ones for that matter. So essentially that would be like the U.S. government going to Apple or Microsoft in saying we're going to just give you money, we're going to give you taxpayer money to compete abroad, right? And so the Chinese government does that actively, specifically in industries like steel and aluminum. So they actively subsidize these industries, and because we have low trade barriers, they take advantage of those cheaper costs the companies do, and that's why you've seen all these 
uh, steel mills and stuff shut down in the Rust Belt because they haven't been able to keep pace with the artificially cheap Chinese steel, right? So I'm I'm like all gun ho about these tariffs because I don't think it is free trade. I, I think he's right when he says free and fair trade. And I think we've been kind of um, duped <laughs> on a lot of these trade deals. But tell me what you guys think. Latoya, what do you think? Oh, sorry. I apologize. I'm still working on some of these technical um, these sec- technical issues over here. Um, but uh, I'd definitely be interested to hear what you think, Kylie, um, just because I, I opened up the conversation and gave some, some information, and I kind of want to want to hear you guys talk a little bit more about it. I'm sorry. I'm trying to work everything out over here. Yeah, it's not a problem at all. Um, I think when it comes to the tariff situation, um, our president is uh, making good on this threat. Um, and it'll be interesting to see if actually anything comes out of it. I know that there's a lot of people who are scared that say, hey, we're starting this trade war. It's going to be awful, you know, all of these things. But they also said it with North Korea, and I feel like we – it's not that I feel that way, but we just made history. So mm. I try not to read too much into it. I will say that it seems like it is weighing the heaviest on Canadians, Mexicans, and Europeans instead of China, mm. who we know that we've been having issues with and haven't been following the rules for over 100 mm. years. Um, by slapping tariffs on our closest allies, it doesn't necessarily seem like it's the smartest policy when we could be working with our allies to push back on China. Um, But that being said, I'm really hoping that we're able to get everyone to a table and maybe come to a fair agreement because I definitely agree with what Sam says is that right now, with what we have right now, it's not necessarily fair. And I feel like everyone deserves fair trade and just because we are the United States doesn't mean that we should necessarily be picking up slack for other countries and on top of all of that hopefully this will create some jobs um, for our citizens and it will be good for our country so what do you guys think about uh, what um, the Senate Finance Committee Chairman Orrin Hatch said that tariffs on steel and aluminum are a tax hike the American people don't need and can't afford what do you guys have to say to that so that, that comes from the general idea, which isn't necessarily incorrect. So it's not necessarily incorrect because what, what a tariff does is you're, you're raising the barrier to entry of competition, right? So supposedly, let's just say that uh, Mexico makes cheaper bananas than the United States, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so a Mexican banana is a dollar, a banana produced in the United States is $2, right? So now if we have free trade with Mexico and they're able to bring those bananas in, you just save the average American consumer a dollar for every banana, right? And so what he's saying is if we were to put tariffs – and this is kind of a stupid example. I don't think this actually happens with bananas, but it happens with other things, right? Um, if we were to put tariffs on Mexico's bananas, right, and say you have to buy American bananas, well, now we just took a dollar away from American consumers, right? So that that would be the idea that it would be a tax because you're making Americans pay more for a product. However, right, that's assuming that there is absolute free trade between the countries. And so, as I've said before with China, the playing field's not level because the Chinese government is actively subsidizing, right, certain industries like steel and aluminum. So it's actually it's called dumping by the by the WTO. It's actually it's interesting because Walmart does this strategy here at home. But it's essentially where you go into a market and you produce items so cheap that you kill competition and then once you've killed competition you have a monopoly, then you raise prices to make up for that killed competition. Right? So that's what China's been doing. Right? And so in my mind, um that's not a tax on the American people. You're just protecting a critical industry from people who are cheating the game. Not to mention like the national security implications I think come with having steel mills in wartime. Um, But yeah, I'll, I'll give that to you, Kylie. 
I mean, I do I do agree with you. I think that if we don't implement fair trade between everyone, then what we're doing is we're allowing countries such as China to come in and essentially surpass us in ways that they haven't surpassed us yet because they are a huge competition for us, whether we like to admit it or not. Um, so I think that – I think it's smart um, what we're doing, and I'm really curious to see what comes out of it, if the president's going to stick to um, what he initially – brought to the table or if we're going to kind of work with our allies a little bit more to see what we can achieve um, on that front to see if maybe we work together and target places such as China or if we're going to stick to this America first type mentality. And it is interesting just on the fact that I was reading an article the other day where this Democratic congressman who's uh, somewhere in Ohio, I think, was saying that he had been begging Congress to implement tariffs on China for like 16 years, right? And so he was laughing at the fact that it was Trump that actually got what he wanted done, right? So it's interesting from like an election 2020 perspective because he did win Pennsylvania and Ohio, and I forget, I think he won Michigan. Uh, Am I wrong? Did he win Michigan? No, yeah, you went Michigan. All... I'm actually I'm from Michigan. Okay, yes, and those are all heavy steel states, right? I mean, so That's not only correct. did he kind of keep that campaign promise, right? But say jobs start coming back to those states, uh, it, it should just be an interesting development come 2020 and even 2018, it's... depending on how fast they come back. And I think that you have a really interesting point there because I was born and raised in Michigan. I don't live there anymore. Um, but I still, all of my family is still there. My mother and father are still there. And I know when I was growing up, you know, you ask people what they work for, what they did, and people would tell you they worked for General Motors. Um, you know, they worked for Delphi, which is a plant um, that makes car parts. So the economy in Michigan and areas like Flint, Detroit, Saginaw, all of these areas that now are having problems is because their economy was basically just run into the ground. They lost their jobs. These places aren't paying the way that they used to pay. You could graduate high school and get a job working at the plant, and you could pull in a six-figure salary with no college education. That's not the America that we live in right now. So in bringing these jobs back, I'm hoping that states such as Michigan or communities such as Flint and Detroit can start to thrive again. Because what you grow up with and what you see, going back to it now, it's devastating to see how many people there are that are homeless, what the job market looks like, how people are being forced to live, not even talking about the the Flint water crisis. Um, But if we can bring the jobs back to those communities, I don't see how imposing some tariffs is necessarily a terrible thing if we're going to benefit from it. Okay. Well, Democratic Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon says, the American steel industry has been under pressure for decades from unfairly traded products from China and elsewhere, as well as global overcapacity. I'm pleased that the president recognizes the importance of addressing these challenges and finally intends to take action. So, Sam, where can we get more information about this to just stay informed? That is a great question that I don't necessarily know I can answer. I mean, honestly, if you, if it depends on what forums you're on, I guess, say, on the Internet. Um, but, like, where I get a lot of my info is actually this website called Real Clear Politics, which is just kind of a conglomerate. So I don't know if you guys have heard of that. But essentially what they do is they um, – they take articles from left, right, and center uh, newspapers, and I guess they kind of post what they think is good or maybe contradictory. So that's where I've gotten a lot of the information um, about trade is they have a section called Real Clear Market. It's pretty now, good. Is that the, is that the same um, website that also during – I know when we were having the president's election and a lot of the debates yes. were going on, they had the fact check. Yeah, they correct? had fact checks, okay. and they they 
were one of the big ones who were tracking actually who who won each state. And if you go on there now, you see a whole list of polls. It's actually, it's, it's an awesome website because you literally you get so many different opinions, so many different polls. But so that's what yeah, I, I think, so, I, think it's a good I remember. I remember during the election that I I would look and kind of fact check and see, and it seemed like they looked at every candidate regardless of political affiliation and literally researched all their statements and what they said. And it seemed kind of more so unbiased than a lot of the resources that we seem to have now. Okay. Uh, wonderful. So I'm really glad that we were able to open up the platform for this conversation. And we want to hear from everyone else as well. And so we are going to take a three-minute break. Um, and we're encouraging callers to give us a call, share your opinions on this. Let's do some resource sharing. Let's talk about it. Even if you don't have a question and you just have a comment, you have something you want to say, you have a resource that you want to share, please give us a call at 917-889-8078. Again, give us a call at 917-889-8078. Stay tuned because when we come back, we're going to be taking some calls, and we're also going to be getting into the second segment of our show, which is the local political race in San Jose, California, and that was really, really juicy. So stay tuned, and we look forward to hearing from all of you when we get back from our break. Listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network. Hashtag One Million Strong. you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel, and a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, you'll live. Learn more at StopTextStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Wake up, America. Today we are a country divided because of racism, hatred, and injustice. But racism will not define us and hatred will not defeat us because that is not who the majority of us are. But we seldom come together as one to have an open dialogue about the racism plaguing our country and how it affects individual ethnic communities and our nation as a whole. That is why the CWR Talk Network has assembled a phenomenal team from various backgrounds and ethnicities to discuss how to overcome the racial divide in America. This special two-hour live online virtual town hall event will be held on Tuesday, June 19th from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Visit our website, cwrtalknetwork.com, and sign up for our newsletter for updates and more details. Don't miss this very special event on Tuesday, June 19th, designed to stop the hate by learning to better communicate. If you are interested in participating or sponsoring this event, contact us by email at info at cwrtalknetwork.com. That's info at cwrtalknetwork.com. Together, we can unite America.
listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network. Hashtag one million strong. Hello. Hey, Latoya, are you there? Hey, yeah. I apologize. I have no idea why, what happened or why. Um, but I'm glad we're back. Kylie, are you back with us? I sure am. Yes. Okay, wonderful. Yeah, I don't know what happened. I'm sorry about that. And I'm sorry, everyone, uh, to everyone who's listening, because I know it must be a little frustrating when you're like, we're really excited to hear, and then you don't hear anything. So we're working out the kinks. Um, just bear with us. Um, even though technology is on the advance, we know we still have some issues <laughs> with that. Um, so, just spelling one more um, way. We, we don't know everything about tech. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> For real. Um, but yeah, welcome back, everyone. Really excited to have everyone back on the air um, and to have our two wonderful co-hosts on the air. And um, I, I want to, before we move into the second segment of the show um, and get into the local political race that happened in San Jose, California, um, and other issues in the community, I want to open it up for any callers um, that had any questions or comments or concerns. So I know we have... Um, someone on standby who is taking callers in. So if we do get callers, we'll have Donnell just interrupt us and let us know, hey, we've got a caller, and then we'll we'll go ahead and, and let them speak. Um, okay. Well, it looks like we don't have anyone yet. So uh, I'm just going to go ahead and jump into this next segment. So, I, I really thought that talking about this uh, this race is, was going to be really interesting for a, a couple of reasons. One, usually races uh, for city council and, and other places um, aren't uh, aren't it isn't as a, a tedious process and as intense a process as it, as it is in a place like San Jose, which is just a huge metropolis of the city, and um, so things got really hot and heavy. Um, for these past few months in San Jose, as some people ran for city council seats, um, our mayor was up for re-election, and I'm saying our because I'm a San Jose resident. Mayor Sam Licardo is up for re-election, um, and and so that's something that was kind of a really big deal as well. Um, there are some city council members who um, are were also up to run for a second term, and. There, some of them had challengers and some of them didn't. And I thought the most uh, profound thing that I saw happen was um, the wave of millennial support in this race. I mean, a lot of people have this idea that uh, California is super progressive and um, super liberal all across the board, and in, in some places that, that is the case. But in San Jose particularly, things are still a bit on the conservative side, especially in local politics. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't have anything against our mayor, Sam Licardo. Um, however, he is a white male, and he doesn't fall under uh, – under the 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 qualification, like as a being a millennial, he's you know he's he's an old he's older he's an older white male um, who's the mayor. That's that's our representation for San Jose, which is an extremely diverse place. Um, and then same thing on the city council. The city council has gotten more diverse, but we still um, we we still saw uh, even this round the first our first uh, black and uh, Latino woman, queer woman (laughs) running for uh, San Jose city council and getting pretty neck and neck with, um, with her running mates. And what's also really interesting about that is that the millennial support in those campaigns. So while some of those that are running um, in those districts are not millennials, their entire teams were made up of millennials, their support systems. Uh, Can you guys still hear me? I'm sorry. No, I can still hear you. Okay, wonderful. Um, yeah, so their campaigns were man. A lot of those campaigns were managed by millennials. Um, a lot of the the canvassing that happened, the knocking on doors, that was all millennial support boosting up those campaigns. And so I thought that was really interesting because I wondered, you know, 
we're at a, a point in time where millennials are stepping up to the plate and wanting to get more involved politically, and I think we've got to start at the local level. And so I think it's really inspiring that millennials have played such an integral role in this particular race. However, it is also interesting to see that millennials were supporting these campaigns, but not the ones running for office. Um, but there was something that I thought was really great. And uh, San Jose uh, City Council District 9, there was a millennial who ran and actually um, got uh, quite a bit of support. Um, his name is Kalen Gallagher, and he is working in education, um, and he is super young. And I know when he came into the race, a, a lot of people were like, oh, you know, this this young kid's going to run for city council. What does he know? You know, what are his accomplishments? Um, and so it's just really interesting, though, that his running did kind of spike some inspiration for some of the younger folks in San Jose to kind of get behind young, uh, the young Dems supported him and endorsed him. And it's just really, it's just really interesting to see that we did have that millennial running. Um, we also had another millennial running in another district as well. And so I was like, you know, it's really cool to just see um, a, a couple of millennials that are like, you know what, I'm not going to be behind the scenes this time. I'm not going to be just supporting. I am going to run. And I think that is going to inspire more millennials to run. I feel like there is this whole uh, mentality that gets pushed, especially in areas where people feel like there aren't any more seats at the table that you have to wait your turn to get a spot um, at the table in city council. And I think San Jose um, is a place that kind of has that feel where you just feel like where it's like you have to wait your turn to get a seat at this table. You're going to have to do these things and connect with these people and kind of suck up to these older these older people to get your spot at the table. But what I love about the millennials in San Jose right now is that we are saying, no, actually, we don't. We don't have to suck up to people. We don't have to sacrifice our integrity. And actually, we can run for the same spots, and we're going to, and we're going to get other millennials to rally behind us. And we saw that this time around, and I thought that that was just really, really inspiring. Um, and so I, I just, you know, I wanted to just talk about that. Um, and I also wanted to highlight that um, Council Member Raul Perales in District 3, I actually had the pleasure of interning for him before. Um, he is a millennial, and he's a city council member, um, and he has just done some wonderful things as a city council member this year, um, making a push to get the Christopher Columbus statue removed from City Hall, um, making a push to get tiny homes uh, built to, to help reduce homelessness, and to provide housing, um, and he's over that downtown uh, area. And so I just I think it's really great to see the work that he's doing as a millennial and, like, pushing those those uh, standards up and saying, hey, like, there are certain things that have to change, and I'm willing to be the face of that change. And I think, yeah, he, gets, he does get some pushback, but he's also made a lot of progress. So it's nice to have someone on the inside that's doing those things. It's also nice to have some millennials out in the community that have come from grassroots, that have worked in the tech industry, and that understand the shift that's happening in the community, also running for those seats at the table. Because there is a shift that needs to happen in, in San Jose City Council. And I think it's coming. I really do. And so I just wanted to comment on that. And, uh, you know, Kylie and uh, Sam, feel free to jump in, ask me any questions or um, make any comments. <laughs> Yeah, so I got a few. Uh, well, I, I'll give you one question. So, I mean, obviously, I'm I'm all the way in Florida, literally opposite side of the U.S. Um, so I wasn't keeping mm -hmm. track of the San Jose elections, but just from what I, I gathered from you, uh, so it seemed a lot of the election was based off identity, right? So, like, what are mm -hmm. you? But how yeah. much of it? Like, what were these people's platforms? What were they running on? I mean, so just from doing like a few. Google searches right, so I'm seeing that San Jose has a huge homeless population. Uh, I know yes. the state of California overall ranks with the most homeless people in the United States, uh, but San mm -hmm. Jose has had an increasingly high homeless population as well as, and I don't know if this is correlated with the homeless population rising, but also they've had a surge in violent crime. Um, so was, were those campaign issues and, and 
if they were, I mean, so what were the different alternatives that people in San Jose were kind of addressing those? Because I know in general, uh, those are problems in a lot of big cities, um, specifically on the coasts. I mean, so we're talking, you have that in a lot of major Californian cities, but you also have that in places like in New York and even in D.C. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in Chicago, right? So I'm wondering, mm-hmm. I mean, uh, what, where was the substance? Um, or what, what did they campaign on besides maybe I'm a millennial or a woman or anything racial? Right. Um, and I think that's kind of where the, the rubber hits the road a little bit. I will tell you, um, and I'll hone in on a specific district race. In District 9, um, there was uh, Pam Foley. Uh, she runs a real estate mortgage business, and she sits on the board of the San Jose Unified School District. And so that's interesting, right? She sits on the board of the San Jose Unified School District, but she also has a real estate uh, mortgage business. And then, you know, we've got this issue of homelessness and housing. So then, you know, what does that tell you about where she might stand um, on that? And then you've got Shay Franco Clausen, who's a director of development at uh, Silicon Valley Faces, um, and she is the black Latina um, queer woman um, who's grown up, you know, grown up basically with the struggle um, and and wants to kind of pave a, a better world for everyone and make it make things more equitable. And then you've got Kaylin Gallagher who is the millennial that was running, and he is a member of the Campbell Union High School District Board. He grew up in San Jose, and he also helped launch uh, an ed tech company called Class Dojo. And so education is his platform. So you got education as his platform. Um, Shay's platform is social justice and um, in so, and, and action. And then um, Pam Foley, she's more business. And, um, and so with those three, housing kind of it, it takes a different – a different turn because in that district particular homelessness and housing isn't that big of an issue, even though it's an issue that impacts the entire city. And actually out of all those campaigns, um, I will say in that particular district that, Shay was the only one that I heard that even addressed housing and homelessness. Then you go to District 3 where Councilmember O. Perales sits and no one ran against him because Councilmember O. Perales is actually working on building solutions um, to, de- to defeat uh, and tackle homelessness and housing. His office is actually super dedicated to that. I mean, um, he, his team works tirelessly on that and really, um, really diligent about uh, talking to constituents and providing resources. Um, and so it is something that's talked about, and I think that he said something in, the, in a city council meeting a while back that just rang true that, hey, this is an issue like we're basically not going to be able to solve over, overnight, but I want to take those steps to start making things happen. And so I think right now he's, he, for me, has been the face of that change in San Jose um, as a city council member, um, especially with getting uh, working on that tiny homes initiative um, and strengthening the housing association in his district. Now, so I'll, I'll just do one more uh, follow-up, and then, um, Kylie, it's all yours. So my question would be, I mean, so did anyone, um, like, can you give me an example of any solutions that people were talking about as far as housing goes? Because so one thing I'm interested in on the city level is looking how different cities handle these problems. And so apparently just from what I've read, all right, I don't live in California and I don't live in Texas. From what I've read, it's interesting looking at the different models that Texas and California have for their cities. Right, so California's mm-hmm. cities are very regulated um, as far as zoning goes. You know, zoning huge. Oh, yeah. Um, as far as building houses, right? So, like California, I know just passed a law that says you now have to have solar panels on your home if for every new home built, right? Which is going to yeah. raise and correct me if I'm wrong on that, but uh, which is going to raise the home value now from up to ten to twenty thousand extra dollars for, for the average mm-hmm. home buyer. Right, and California already has the most expensive housing in the U.S., um, partly because of policies like that, making them super expensive to build. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, I wonder, um, I wonder how people are going to address that because a lot of the problems, how I see it, is due because of current regulation. Right, so I'm wondering if, yeah. if you were able to garner any, like, any meat that anybody was saying, okay, this is this is a specific problem and this is what I'm going to implement 
so that we can give these homeless people a chance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and um, just to kind of unpack um, a little bit more, like I said, just from um, my own observations and what I've seen, the only one that I've seen actually really aggressively trying to make that change is Council Member Raul Perales in District 3. This, I mean, the tiny home, he's like, listen. Because he's he's the only one that's been that I've seen be extremely vocal about it and say, hey, I want to pass a memo, a memo and I want to get tiny homes built and I will volunteer. He actually said, I will volunteer my district to be the area that tries them out so we can start getting we can start solving this problem now. Um, and so I think just but taking that level of initiative. He's the only one, though. You think like you think others should be should be vocal about it as well, or is it, do they do you think Absolutely. they don't care? I think others should definitely be vocal about it. I think Councilmember Member Perales doesn't care about what people think, and he doesn't mind being the person that disagrees with everyone at the table. And I think we need more people like that in our city council. Yeah, I think we need more people like that in our city council. It's time for a change. And I think he knows that. Um, he said it. Um, he said the council is bound to make a shift. Um, Everybody, uh, everybody does bring uh, brings in their own individual experience, and I think there do, there do, there needs to be some new voices at the table. I'm hoping that his will continue to be one of them. But yeah, there has to be a change. There has to be because I, you know, I see what you're getting at, Sam. And bottom line is, the people that do have power to make that change simply aren't using that power. You know, and that's what it boils down to, and so. We're going to go ahead and um, go into our next small break. Um, I just, I could talk about this stuff all day. (laughs) I I love it. Um, But, you know, we still want to give people an opportunity to potentially call in um, if you didn't get a chance. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, Our call-in number is 917-889-8078. We look forward to hearing from you, and we'll be back in just three minutes. You're listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. This is the CWR Talk Network. Hashtag One Million Strong. One in three adults in America have prediabetes, but most don't know it. To let people know it can be reversed before it becomes type 2 diabetes, professional basketball player Julius Randle is doing everything in reverse. I'm only dunking with reverse windmills. I drove the whole way to practice in reverse. I don't recommend it. This move is called the reverse shuffle. I do recommend it. And it took me months to learn how to speak in reverse, like this. <clears throat> Here's 10 almost for diabetes type 2 with living Ben has my mom. In other words, my mom has been living with type 2 diabetes for almost 10 years. So together, we want to say to the 84 million Americans at risk, exercise and healthy eating can help reverse prediabetes. Start by taking a simple one-minute risk test at doihaveprediabetes.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and its prediabetes awareness partners. <laughs> Bet he can't say that in reverse. Hello? Did you just look down at your phone? You did it again, didn't you? You know, you're flying down the road in a three-ton hunk of steel, and a text takes your eyes off the road for an average of five seconds. At 55 miles per hour, that's long enough to travel the length of a football field and cause some serious damage. Turn it off. Trust me. Whatever it is, You'll live. Learn more at StopTechStopRex.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council and the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration. Wake up, America. Today we are a country divided because of racism, hatred, and injustice. But racism will not define us and hatred will not defeat us because that is not who the majority of us are. But we seldom come together as one 
to have an open dialogue about the racism plaguing our country and how it affects individual ethnic communities and our nation as a whole. That is why the CWR Talk Network has assembled a phenomenal team from various backgrounds and ethnicities to discuss how to overcome the racial divide in America. This special two-hour live online virtual town hall event will be held on Tuesday, June 19th from 1 o'clock to 3 o'clock p.m. Central Time. Visit our website, cwrtalknetwork.com, and sign up for our newsletter for updates and more details. Don't miss this very special event on Tuesday, June 19th, designed to stop the hate by learning to better communicate. If you are interested in participating or sponsoring this event, contact us by email at info at cwrtaltnetwork.com. That's info at cwrtaltnetwork.com. Together, we can unite America. Hello. Hey. Hey, are we all back? Are you back, Sam? Yes, ma'am. Yes, awesome. You're listening to the CWR Talk Network, America's voice for causes, issues, and life empowerment. All right, are we actually back now, everyone? (laughs) There we go. We will get this, everyone. Just give us a couple more tries, and we'll have this perfected. But I love that we, you know, these things happen because we're human beings. I mean, and and this is just what it's all about. Um, So I want to I want to pick up where we left off, um, talking about the homelessness and housing in San Jose and the uh, the local politicians. And I just wanted to say something before um, we. Segue or you guys comment or ask questions because um, I know we're talking a lot about Councilmember Raul Perales and something about his office that was really unique in terms of solving this issue or trying to start to solve this issue is that he has a dedicated team of people that care about the community because they live in the community and they're from the community um, so much so that one of his staffers actually ended up moving on and working. And works for the works for housing now. She's like taking this under her her um her umbrella, and so it's just really wonderful. And the other thing is that one of his um one of his biggest pushes as a politician is not that I as a council member will solve everything for you, but I will actually try to excite um, and ignite that fire in you so that you as a community can come together and um. And, and and build these resources together and make your communities together. A prime example is how strong um, his push is for the neighborhood associations and his district for them to be strong and running and organized. Because I've noticed that those those neighborhood associations that are active and his district are the neighborhood associations where they are getting resources, they are getting some funding, and they're getting the support that they need to make sure that the neighborhoods are safe and that people that are um, battling homelessness and housing do get resources. And so I think I like that angle that he goes from. It's not like I'm going to control, completely control the show here. I'm going to provide you a platform and you guys are going to organize and then together we can work to attack this problem. And I think that's why he's been so effective with that. Um, But yeah, Kylie, what do you think about this issue of homelessness and housing? I mean, it's something I know that it's obviously not just happening in San Jose. <laughs> no, it's definitely something that's happening everywhere. Um, I do, I did think it was interesting um, what you were saying about the councilman. Um, I think that, you know, just taking it back there for a second, um, I think that maybe this younger generation, you know, or I, I'm not sure if he's millennial or he looks kind of young, um, but something that we're, kind of heading in the direction of is getting people involved and kind of giving everyone in a way some sort of accountability and some sort of hands-on approach to it because you're not just having someone sitting in office and says we're going to do this 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 and this and I feel this is best and I this is going to work and you know whatnot he's actually involving the community because when you know your community and you care about your community sometimes the decisions that you make or the things that you do knowing the people in your community um, might change your actions and the way that you go about things 
So I think it's really interesting that um, he has this kind of different but innovative approach to to his job. And it seems like maybe a lot of other places might potentially benefit from a similar approach. Mm-hmm. So I think that's really neat. Yeah. Um, Sorry, Sam, do you want I'm to say sorry, something? Yeah. Um, and so I, I know the we got, what, just a couple more minutes left of the show. So I, I want to get your opinion uh, on this LaToya. So I read a book okay. two years ago by this guy named Joel Kotkin. So he's an mm-hmm. urban planner. Uh, and the book is called The New Class Conflict. It's an extremely interesting book, but a lot of what he talks about is California. Um, and so I'd like to get your perspective. Um, the fact, so my, my general opinion is that California's housing problem is currently because of the progressive leadership, right, and the policies that they've been implementing have been driving housing costs up mainly through, like I kind of mentioned before in the show, different environmental regulations. Um, mm. So what I see happening in that state is a lot of over-regulation that has restricted housing supply, essentially, driving costs up. And so what you have in California, and looking at the statistics, I know California has one of, if not the highest, out-migration of U.S. citizens in the United States. Uh, and a lot of that is due to affordable housing. And, and these aren't poor, rich people. These are actually middle-class people. So as an outsider, my view would be the current problem. It, it's interesting to see, like, who's getting elected there because the current people to me that seem to be in power who – from what I know, would be progressive, seem to have caused the problem. Um, but that's my view. So, And I don't live in California. Mm-hmm. I live in Florida. Right? So I'd love to yeah. get your pushback on that and tell me uh, what you think maybe the pro- where the problem came from. Do you think anyone caused it? Um, and if you think like anyone's – not even just on a community level, but on a state level, like well, what might the governor be doing? What might your state reps be doing? and hmm Right. No, yeah. Um, so I think, like, I agree. I, I, this It is a problem because of, of who's been elected. Uh, who's, sorry, who's been elected. But I will say this. I don't think that it's progressives that has caused this. I actually think it's the lack of progressives because, again, like I was saying earlier, people think that California is more progressive than it actually is, and it's just not. The people that have the power, the people that are sitting at the table with the voices, the majority of them are, like, still, like, it, it just not thinking in a, in a way that, Shows that they truly care about um, the entire community. Like we're still, it just still has so such a long way to go. I mean, I think that's why um, someone like you know Raul, you know, who's doing the work that he's doing, is challenging because there is no, there's like no balance. You know what I mean? It's like, and I think I guess that's probably part of the problem too. You get a couple of progressives that are like, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that, and then that could cause some issues, and then you've got people on the other end that are on, on the complete opposite end. But there's like no balance. You know what I mean? It's like we're not coming together to find solutions that work for everyone. Where's that common ground? So I think we're experiencing consequences from both ends of that. Um, and so, I mean, I, I, I get what your view is, and, like, I, I totally understand that. And I just think that there needs to be more progressives at the table. I think that's that's kind of what the issue is. But I do think that there needs to be more conversation and more strategic planning happening before people are making decisions. And I do feel like sometimes progressives can go in um, with a lot of passion um, and a lot of ambition and maybe sometimes don't have all the, the, the strategy and logistics worked out. And so I, and I think that's where we kind of suffer some consequences too when it comes to housing. The other thing is there are politicians um, and, and people that have a voice at the table uh, that are invested in real estate. 
So what does that say? You know what I mean? And like what they're, how they're benefiting um, from from the, the housing costs going up, and then also having their voices at the table. So I think there's a, a conflict of interest there as well. Um, so I just think well, the, I'll, the, I'll the, the, the voice has got to change. Oh, go no, go ahead. Yeah. yeah um, so that's it's interesting because, and I'm looking, I'm looking at some stats right now. So I'm not a yeah. genius. I'm looking at my computer, but I'm seeing. So California's Senate is 40, has 40, no, I'm sorry, has 25 Democrats and 14 Republicans. And then the Assembly has 53 Democrats and 25 Republicans. So it's overwhelmingly, right, a Democratic state. But you wouldn't say that a lot of those Democrats, so you would say some of those Democrats aren't necessarily progressive, right? And so you would say that's what the problem is. And so why yeah. – so do you think – and so this is interesting because this might go back to 2016 where you have, like, the Bernie Sanders-Hillary Clinton divide. Mm-hmm. Like, do you kind of see that? Do you see maybe – and I, I'm not asking you uh, how you voted or anything, but do you see kind of a, an, a, a, say, Democratic establishment that is out of touch with what the people really believe and want? Oh, Absolutely. Absolutely. I even think about it. what's actually interesting is that um, I think about what it means to be a Democrat to some of those people and what it means for, I guess, myself to be a Democrat. And I just don't think that those things are the same. I feel like even um, even our Democrats uh, are, are still holding on to some of these ideas that are just not <laughs> helpful, and I, I feel like that they need to evolve a little bit. I think the, the mindset needs to change, um, and and I think that's yeah, I, exactly, exactly what you just said. Like I, I just don't think that I think they're Democrats, but I think that there there needs to be a, a an evolution of the mindset because I think that people are stuck, and I and I think that I I still feel the best interest of the people is not fully being uh, taken into consideration. And it's, it's obvious um, living in San Jose and really seeing the effects of that and the impact of that. Um, It's just like, it's blatant. It's really blatant. Um, But yeah. So, I mean, I guess we're coming to a close now. And I mean, I think like what I would encourage everyone to do, is to think about how you can get involved locally. It doesn't mean that you need to, you know, work on a campaign or, but, you know, maybe just attending a city council meeting or a town council meeting and just having your voice be heard. It's powerful. It means something. And as millennials, when we think about reimagining the system and making things better or pushing pushing an agenda that's going to bring collective voices to the table, we have to, we have to start with ourselves first. And so I think, um, that that's just kind of where where I want to encourage and inspire um, our generation and and those of us that do have the power of voice to use it and to be very strategic when we do use it. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening in tonight, and we look forward to speaking with you again next week. It's been wonderful. We will get this right. We're going to keep at it, um, and we're really excited and just know that dialogue is the first step to world peace, and I think we've got to keep the conversation going, and you are an integral part of that. Thank you. Have a great night, everyone.